0: Welcome to the LSE Events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello everyone, wherever you are, welcome and thank you for joining us uh, on this session on can trade shape Africa's post-covid recovery. It's hosted by the Lalji Institute for Africa as part of the LSE uh, Festival 2022. I am David Luke, a professor in practice at the Filosology Institute for Africa here at the LSE, and I'm chairing this session. I'm joined by a two person panel who I will briefly introduce as you can find further details on our website. Rebecca Grispan, UNCTAD Secretary General is not able to join us today as planned. She's represented by Richard Wright, who is director of UNCTAD's Globalization and Development Strategies Division. Richard is our main speaker and will share his views on the role that trade can play in Africa's post-COVID recovery against the background of low expectations for global growth following the Russia-Ukraine war and the related economic shock that is characterized by an inflationary spiral driven by higher, uh, primarily by higher food and energy uh, prices. Uh, Welcome, uh, Richard. Our second, Panelist is Teniola Teo, uh, who is an LSE alumna and a researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in Dakar. Most of all, Teniola represents the upcoming African generation whose lives and livelihoods will be shaped by today's policy responses to post COVID recovery and the current global economic shock. She will provide commentary on Richard's presentation and share her own thoughts on the role trade can play in shaping Africa's response to the recovery, future growth and economic transformation. Welcome Teniola. Uh, the event is being recorded. It is on Facebook live stream. For those who wish to tweet about the event, the Twitter hashtag is LSE Festival. Let me say that again. Hashtag LSE Festival as one word. Uh, please use the Zoom Q&A function for your comments and, and questions. Without further ado, I'll give Richard the floor. He will speak for 15 minutes, followed by Teddy who will speak for 10 minutes. After that, there will be a brief exchange among the panel as I follow up upon some keys used in their respective interventions and invite further comments from each of them. It's my expectation that half of the time we have for this session, about 30 minutes, will be devoted to QA, uh, which will allow you, the audience, to interact with the speakers and engage in debate on the issues. So let's get started, and as we do so, I just want to note that uh, early this morning, the uh, the WTO 12 ministerial uh, conference did reach uh, some interesting agreements, uh, important agreements on fisheries, on the TRIPS uh, waiver, although it did not go as far as expected, and a few other areas. I'm sure that uh, Richard and Tenney uh, would want to touch on these as well so now richard let me give you the floor and you have um, about 15 minutes you have the floor
1: okay david thank you very much and uh, again apologies for uh, sg greenspan not making up we are caught up in the issue around ukraine war and its impact on developing countries and that's sucking a lot of oxygen out of our atmosphere at the moment so apologies uh, for that, let me to the best of my ability try and step into her shoes and give at least my take on the issue of can can trade shape Africa's post-COVID recovery. Um, what we certainly know is that trade has shaped uh, Africa's past economic history, that's for sure, and not always for the better either. Uh, that's that's also. Uh, true, um, and I and I think in the context of the title, it's important to note that can trade shape Africa's recovery it is slightly different, and it but it often gets confused with the question: Can trade liberalisation shape Africa's future? These are not necessarily the same things, although they often get uh, uh, um, uh, confused with each other. L- um, d- let me just set it in the kind of Bigger context that you raised, uh, David, about the current uh, economic moment in in which this uh, question uh, arise, arises, and the um, and the overall growth p- picture for the for the region. Um, I mean, Africa p- probably more than any other developing region, um, its growth prospects are shaped by outside factors. I think that uh, that's something we know, um, and the two big factors that have shaped it over the last decade, more than the last decade, really, have been what happens to uh, on commodity markets. I mean, that's an older history, obviously, that, that in, in the work, of course, UNCTAD has done, been looking at this question <laughs> since its uh, creation in the early 1960s. Um, it became particularly important in the early 2000s, uh, for Africa, which was the period of a growth renaissance on the continent from around 2002 to, I guess, around two th- 2000, uh, 2014. Uh, there was a strong growth recovery across the continent, even with the, the global financial shock. Um, and, and, and it's important to uh, recognize that and think why that happened. Uh, the other big factor, external factor, of course, that has shaped Africa's uh, economic prospects for a long time, but particularly in this period, is the uh, access to finance and the question of the role of international finance in the shaping of its growth process. I think, I think there's no doubt that the successful efforts to reduce debt through HIPPIC initiatives at the end of the last millennium, the beginning of uh, the 2000s, along with the deregulation of international financial markets, at least was an important factor of Africa's return to international capital markets and that contributed for a period to the strong growth in the, uh, from uh, the early 2000s to around uh, 2014. Importantly, of course, these are both the fa- these two factors, commodities and finance, are very much in every- on everybody's minds as a consequence of the war in Ukraine and the impact of the war on commodity prices and on on, on um, the cost of finance is an issue that we need to uh, come back to. So I would say, of course, that after 2014, the growth across the continent began to slow. Notice that before COVID-19 hit, uh, growth was already slowing down on the continent. Uh, there were already very serious concerns that we had in UNCTAD about rising levels of indebtedness in, in the continent and the, the servicing of, of debt. A large number of African countries were already classified as either uh, in high, in, in, uh, at a high level of debt distress, or actually in a situation of debt crisis uh, by the IMF. So, already before COVID, the, 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 there were real, some real serious concerns. And and COVID itself was a much more damaging shock. Again, an external shock, something that was not caused by the continent itself. Um, but it was a much more damaging uh, shock than was the global financial crisis uh, for 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 the African region. Um, yeah. Um, so 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 that's a, it's a very uneven growth process, a, a growth picture over the last two decades, but one that it has deteriorated since the middle of the last decade. And there are real concerns looking forward that we will have to, I think, talk about. Um, I think it's from a tra- from the trade angle, of course, it's important to recognize that Africa is a very open economy. I mean, it's if you take exports and imports as a share of GDP, it's, it's, I think as a continent, it's very much at the developing country average. And, and, and some, some countries are, are, are well above the average. Of course, most of the region is a heavily commodity dependent uh, trade profile. Um, so it's, a and, 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 and it's a, most countries are highly specialized in terms of what it is that they export with a concentration on either uh, fuel, minerals or agricultural exports. Um, and that, and indeed, if you look at the region as a whole, it is probably the most specialized region in the global economy. Um, uh, it's, it's a region that has been liberalizing since the, uh, pr- at least the mid-1980s, um, both through uh, free trade agreements, uh, through the multilateral process, but probably more importantly than anything else, through the adoption of structural adjustment programs uh, uh, in the lending, uh, through lending uh, at the Washington based institutions, uh, which, as we know, have come with very uh, significant policies attached to them, of which trade liberalization is always a, an important uh, component. So, SAPs have been, I think, the major vehicle for liberalization across the continent, but free trade agreements have also been a very important part of that of that opening up uh, story. Um, we know the AGOA and the EPEZ and the other uh, features of that that I'm, I'm sure you're more familiar with the, uh, than I, than I am. We tend to think that the benefits of those kinds of agreements have been exaggerated for the continent. I mean, there are certainly there are certainly positives. They they tend to be associated with a greater ability to track foreign direct investment. They, 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 they go in hand in hand. And we can have a discussion about what that means, I guess. But that's that's certainly tends has certainly been a feature of the of the continent since the early 1990s. They, on the other hand, they tend to squeeze down policy space and fiscal space, and both those. Issues have been exposed quite viscerally during the COVID-19 shock, where many African countries clearly lack the policy and fiscal space to respond to that shock in an effective, an effective um, uh, fashion. Um, so, so this, so, so I, I guess you know, I think it's very important to emphasise that, that that dependence on the region uh, of these external factors that have a profound impact. Uh, through both growth and uh through through both trade and and financial avenues on on the prospects um on, on the prospects uh, uh uh looking ahead and that and and that hasn't and that hasn't changed i think uh, uh as a consequence of the of the shock of the war in 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 ukraine um i think for us then the the, the way we try and how get a handle on the question of whether trade can shape Africa's recovery in a positive way, um, uh, looking looking forward, is, is to look at, I mean, I, I guess we we want we look at trade obviously in, in from a developmental point of view. I mean trade can bring benefits through competitiveness, through increased efficiency, uh, uh, through its links to foreign direct investment. Those are all potentially positive Channels. The question, I think, for us is whether it leads to the kind of transformative uh, growth path uh, that we we associated with a long and sustained um, upward improvement in living standards and and well and and the welfare of the majority of the population. And I think, I mean, and there are very serious questions, I think, to be asked about the recent his- history of uh, Africa's insertion into the global economy. Um, uh, if that is the lens. Uh, that you look at it uh, from um, and I think in particular the hyper-specialization of the continent although it did contribute to growth in that decade or so from the early millennium went hand in hand with a two features that we think have uh, are now in a way coming back to haunt the continent and will have a profound impact on whether trade does act in a positive way over the remainder of this decade. The first is the tendency of uh, industrial development to either stagnate or suffer from what we, along with other people, Danny Roderick and other people, have called premature deindustrialization. That is the loss of uh, uh, industrial capacity at a level of income where the opposite should be happening. And that's a feature across the continent, I think, and we think that's a particularly damaging feature of Africa's growth path uh, over the last uh, couple of decades. And the other feature that we think is associated with some of the um, uh, trends that I've talked about uh, with respect to trade has been a weakening of um, capital formation across the across the continent, that is investment shares in, in most African countries have essentially been stagnant since the middle of the 1980s. They, they've, they've rarely, I mean, there are exceptions of course, but, but, but in most cases, it's rarely uh, moved above 20% of GDP, which we see for countries at, at the level of income of most African countries, certainly Sub-Saharan African countries needs to be significantly higher than that figure. Uh, and so, this more open, this more liberal, this more specialised environment that has been that has been established, all of which, if you believe standard trade models, should be generating uh, 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 prosperity and and, and dynamic uh, growth, has not really led to that because the structure of the economy uh, of the economies has not been dynamic, and one of the key drivers of sustained economic growth, namely uh, capital formation has not has has suffered significantly uh, during during these years, and foreign direct investment has not either in terms of volume has not compensated for that, or in terms of direction, because again most of that foreign direct investment has been associated with um, commodity uh, the, uh, the 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 commodity uh, dependent economies. Um, on top of that, and I think it's a, a, I'm sure it's a feature that you're all familiar with and have, have talked about extensively, foreign direct investment has been associated with the rise of illicit financial flows from the continent. Um, Figured, I mean, measuring illicit financial flows is, of course, by definition difficult. That's because they're illicit. Um, but you know, figures in the it's figures uh, in the in the region of 80, 90, 100 billion dollars a year are are common in terms of the continent. We are in cell uh, Uncad is currently engaged in efforts to try and. Uh, provide better men- m- measurement of illicit financial flows it is a difficult it's a difficult thing to do but this is a huge problem in terms of lost resources uh, for the continent which again although is not directly associated with the with the trading environment is in many respects linked uh, to it uh, and and i think i think that's a, a big challenge that that needs to be when we're talking about trade and this again is a very uncad type of Perspective on it, we 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 don't think it's helpful to talk about trade in a very siloed fashion. You have to link trade to a fina- the financial environment. You have to link you have to link it to the balance of payments situation. And one of the features of this more open uh, economies across Africa, of course, is that imports have increased much more rapidly than exports over the course of the last two decades. Balance of payments. The uh, 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 deficits have been rising. Those are filled, of course, by borrowing. Borrowing ultimately comes with the servicing of the debt. The servicing of the debt depends upon the strength of growth performance. A weakening growth performance is guaranteed to make debt servicing a, a, a further burden on on, on government uh, finances and, and resource mobilization efforts. So, so those kinds of linkages, I think, need to be fed very intimately into the trade story if we're going to understand its role, potential role, as a source of, of recovery uh, post, post-COVID. Um, in terms of what we would like to see, I guess, I, you know, one of, I mean, it's a standard kind of untad wrap, you know, we uh, given that we don't think leaving things to markets tends to work out, favourably for most developing countries, particularly developing countries with a long history of structural deficits of one kind or another, then the role of the developmental state becomes particularly important. Um, The role of industrial policy becomes particularly important within that question of what the developmental state needs to do. And I think we are most people would argue that there has been a hollowing out of state capacities across Africa in the context of structural adjustment programs. And I think without some uh, reversal of that trend uh, and the building up of of new capacities, then, then finding a sustainable route one that addresses the structural weaknesses and increasingly addresses the climate problem, which is something that we haven't talked about but probably should because that has a profound impact on the continent, um, is, 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 is very important. In that context, you know, there I know there's a lot of hope that small and medium-sized enterprises will somehow power a new growth path in Africa, I I think Africa's problem is as much the lack of large firms as it is of small firms. International trade is. Incredibly heavily dominated by very large uh, firms, and you look at concentration rates in international trade. Then you know the top the top one five percent of firms, large international firms, dominate uh, m- uh, most markets in international trade, and that makes competing in those markets all the more difficult. Uh, value chains, to some extent, uh, offer some potential in that context, and that there's a big debate to be had about the role of global value chains in this story. Commodities themselves have been structured around global value chains since, you know, the 17th century. So, value chains per se do not spell uh, 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 successful uh, trade and growth uh, relationships. But there are opportunities there. We we've been arguing recently quite extensively that we need to explore regional value chains uh, uh, as a as an alternative there, and what that and what that might mean in terms of policy that is required to build regional value chains. Obviously the, the, the continental free trade area for Africa um, figures into that and whether the way in which that is evolving uh, offers opportunities to build regional uh, value chains of the sort that would lead to more sustained economic growth. We are all aware that intra-African trade is very low but that's, I mean, and that's an obvious consequence of the structure of the economies. You know, if you're producing lots of copper and your neighbours producing lots of maize, there's not very much room for uh, uh, intimate trade relations there. On the positive side, to the extent that, African countries do trade in manu- uh, do 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 trade in manufacture uh, manufacturers amongst themselves. They tend to be more dynamic parts of the manufacturing chain that do get traded. So, so there are real opportunities. I think that we see. Uh, with 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 the CFTA, but again, simply putting up tariffs and hoping things will work out is not probably the right strategy to take. You you need a lot of coordination. You need space for uh, implementing industrial policies that that work for both you and your neighbours, uh, and you need financing, appropriate levels of financing to make sure that capacity uh, uh, does does evolve in the right direction. So so we certainly. We, we certainly look forward to, to to seeing these opportunities flourish in the context of the CFTA. I think, I think though, I, we we do also, and we obviously we engage with with the Secretariat of the CFTA quite closely. We do encourage them to think not simply in terms of tariffs, but also in terms of policy options and the need for strategic thinking when it comes to giving a developmental dimension and not just a free trade dimension to the CFTA. Let me leave it there, David.
0: Yeah, no, thanks uh, very much, uh, Richard. Um, you know, I have to say that it's uh, somewhat something of a bleak picture you painted, but I think it's also a realistic uh, a picture. And um, I'll turn the floor over to uh, Teniola. As I said in the introduction, Teniola belongs to a generation, Uh, that will um, have these uh, issues as a legacy that they will have to deal with. So, um, uh, Taniola, over to you to see um, what your thoughts are on this um, realistic uh, picture, I think sovereign picture that uh, Richard has painted. Over to you, Taniola.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor David Luke. So yes, um, a sobering picture, but then these are some of the questions that we ought to be asking ourselves and then coming up with very pragmatic answers. answers rather. So yes, it's true that trade shapes economies, right? So it determines uh, incomes and wealth, but also to a large extent, it determines what people within a particular economy, what they are directing their efforts towards. So the kinds of activities that they're doing. Um, and it's also true that you can only sell what someone will buy from you. So that's the that's the that's the situation that we found ourselves in. So in- and I'm glad that um, Richard um, mentioned that. So as a result of something to do with perhaps our colonial history, but just economic history, um, there was a particular kinds of products that the world was interested in buying from us and that's how our economies were shaped or structured towards. But then also um, the other direction where we were receiving uh, the more uh, higher value manufactured products that um, have closer links to wealth and incomes. So that's the question that the AFCFTA is trying to answer. That's the problem is trying to solve really because um the question is i mean when you look at african trade uh africa's trade with, with the world is, is dominated by commodities like we've all observed today but um when we trade amongst ourselves it seems like we we trade a bit, i mean it's limited trade but then even the trade that happens is a bit more of higher value higher value goods so i'd like to give the example that uh, people may not be interested in buying a computer made in nigeria uh in the world, but it's possible that someone in Kenya might be interested in buying uh, a computer made in Nigeria. And I looked at some trade map data just um, a few days ago and I was looking at Africa to Africa trade. It was a pleasure to see that uh, parts of the higher value uh, goods that are being traded includes shipments, um, which we have some production capacity in Nigeria. I mean, it's always good to to see something good about Nigeria because there are not many things um, out there. But then um, I'm going to preface my comments really uh, Reflecting on the COVID-19 pandemic, and I think that when I when I continue, I'm going to address some of the things that Richard brought up. So really, when I think about the COVID-19 pandemic, I think about it in two ways. I think about inequalities first of all. So we have income inequalities, we have also health inequalities, but also the vaccine inequalities issues that came up. But we also have things around opportunity and just being ready for for changes in the economy because you had a lot of reshoring and also people looking for other sources of some goods that at that time, uh, Africa wasn't in the best position to respond to. So when uh, other options or alternatives for the supply of some goods were being sought out, we're not able to respond to that because we're not ready. I'll start with inequality. And I think that this may, um, speak to the issue that was also raised by Richard when it comes to the transformative effects of trade. So the truth is that a lot of our economies are not structured in the ways that they are supposed to. So we saw that in the US, for example, um, during the COVID nineteen pandemic and afterwards, there was there was a, a transfer of wealth from the lower economic classes to the higher economic classes. It just showed that I mean it's something that we're already quite aware of. But then you just brought it into um, stark contrast of reality that, you know, the structure of that economy was not the best. And uh, one of the few advantages of blitz development um, in Africa is that we should be able to learn from others. Isn't it? And that's the first point I want to make. It's very important to learn from others. A lot of people have gone ahead of us. They have had some successes, had some failures, but we need to learn from them. Even in in in, the, in terms of regional integration, um, we know that the European Union uh, met some challenges you know, some years ago with, uh, with Brexit. So it's very important to learn the successes and the failures of integration efforts, the successes and and the failures of trade integration efforts, but just how difficult it might be to cooperate or coordinate on, I mean, on a supranational levels and just how to mitigate for some of the challenges that may come up. So that's the first thing I want to make. The second point I want to make is about inclusivity. So trade, you know, can be good or bad, right? So trade can actually increase inequalities if it's not managed properly. And it can even lead to um, more exclusion if it's not managed properly. And I think about this in in a few levels, on, on a few levels. So for Africa, we have countries that are different levels of development. I mean, on average, quite low to medium levels, but then still there is some variation um within the continent, and it's quite important that even as we embark on this project to integrate um, our economic sectors through trade, uh, it's important that we pay enough attention to um the variations within the within the continent, and that's how you make sure that you don't get somewhere down the line and you have some countries opting out of the agreements because they feel that it does not benefit them. We can't be we can't deceive ourselves about this reality. We need to control for it. We need to respond to it inclusivity also even comes within the countries where on the regional level you have imbalances in many countries so I come from Nigeria and in Nigeria there are imbalances between the north and the south and it's, it's just the reality that when you talk about trade integration it often just focuses on maybe the city regions the places that are a bit more advanced and then it leaves the other sides out of it and we've seen a very real repercussion of that in Nigeria for example the Boko Haram crisis can be linked directly to social deprivation in parts of the north and how that's allowed for the insurgency to emerge and even to be sustained because um, there are not many alternatives for some people in the region. And even now we have another issue, the banditry, which is also linked to the lack of inclusion of particular members of our population into the economic system. So it's very important that um, we think about inclusion in the AFCFT and it's linked to the issue of of women and young people. I know people always talk about women and youth, but it's really about how you make sure that the gains of the AFCFT are not accruing. You know, just to the the top, more or less. But then they are being. Um I mean, they're being distributed one way or the other across the continent so that it's actually bringing prosperity and it's actually being transformative. So when you talk about women and youth, I think it's it's a lot about the firms that have been included in the AFCFTA. So we have some, some large firms that are better positioned to take, to take advantage of agreements like this because they can invest in, in transportation because we have high cost of transportation. But then how do you make sure that even the smaller ones, the SMEs are embedded in those, like we said, the regional value chains perhaps, you know, and it's something that we have to be very i mean we have to do very intentionally right because it's not going to happen automatically so we need to really think about inclusion inclusivity not as an afterthought but more as a feature because one thing that we need very desperately on the continent is jobs. And the only way we can, uh, you know, create the right kind of jobs in in on the continent is not having jobs as an afterthought. So you think you do trade policy, industrial policy, then perhaps jobs would also grow. You no, know, it doesn't always work like that. We need to be quite intentional about making sure that um, these things are happening. Then I was going to also mention innovative thinking. So it's true that, you know, at the moment when you look at the world, a lot of things are happening and it's affecting us in many different ways. You have climate change, you have the, the war in Ukraine, but it just Means that we need to think a little bit more innovatively. So in Africa, I can speak for Nigeria, for example, there's a growth in the services sector. I know that there is some talk about uh, industries without smokestacks. I mean, it can be debated to what extent they can be useful or not for Africa's industrial growth. But then, you know, it may be time to, you know, look back at some of the development policies that have been used in the past and see, okay, are there any ways to adapt these to our current realities? Because we do not have a choice. We need to move forward one way or the other. So what can we learn from what has happened before and how can we adapt this to what is what is happening um, at the moment? And this also links to the issues with FDI because I think sometimes you think about FDI as a silver bullet, you know, and I'm glad that you also raised this, Richard, that FDI can be good or bad as well if you don't take your time to shape it in, 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 in the appropriate way. So for example, even in terms of locations and in terms of the way it's structured, and in terms of the knowledge transfer that you expect to happen and in terms of uh, i mean of course capital flights like you mentioned so we need to really think innovatively and try to um, make sure that we're not just copying we're learning but not just copying but then making sure that everything that we're pursuing is um is suited for purpose a very important point to make again is cooperation and coordination you also mentioned this and this is a problem that is facing the afcft at the moment i mean the last i checked um, there's some hiccups with the negotiations because with the rules of origin, um, I mean, it's gotten to a particular percentage, but then there's a little bit left. And it's because it's really clashing with some of the industrial policies for the countries that are member uh, members of the AFCFT. And there's a reality that if we're going to embark on a project like this, um, at, to some extent, even our industrial policies have to be somewhat coordinated. Uh, but the question is, what you know, who is going to be responsible for this? Because the AFCFT Secretariat says that you know, they are member-driven and they don't have the power to tell all you know countries what to do i don't think it's about telling countries what to do but for example you have the afdb the african development bank that has a lot of capital and financing and you can perhaps use that to nudge countries in particular directions and really to just make sure that our production um, structures are somewhat complementary because this would, you know, help us even move faster with things like the AFCFT and even in things like trying to attract the right kinds of investments into African countries. So we're not just all competing for the same small pool of investments. So that's something that I wanted to mention as well. Cooperation and coordination is going to be very key to, to Africa's success as far as trade goes. And then I think we need to invest more in understanding our world, right? There's a lot of things happening um and like you said we are often quite vulnerable to external shocks but these things have happened for a long time the external shocks in 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 many different ways commodity prices or whether it's a war somewhere pandemic and i think we need to even get to a point where we're not just reacting, but then we, we we see some of these things even as the as as they're coming. So when the war in Ukraine happened, I mean, there were now some projections about how it might affect Africa. But I think Africa should take, or African countries and people like me, perhaps, and whoever is working in trade and development in Africa, needs to take a bit more agency in you know looking ahead and seeing some of these things and figuring out how is this going to affect us, and then making a plan for it. So it doesn't meet us, and then we are scrambling around and trying to figure out what to do. But then really looking ahead, so we know that um, as far as the world goes, I mean, some say power is shifting. I mean, when it comes to capital, you talk about the U.S. and and China. So we need to understand these actors even better, so that we are not just at the receiving end of whatever they are doing, but we are we are we are showing a bit more a bit more agency in the way that we we um in the way that we address these issues. So yeah, these are some of the points that I'd like to raise. You know, as far as um the FCFT and Africa's recovery from from COVID goes. It is possible, but like we've all said, there is a lot of work to be done. It's not gonna happen by magic or automatically. It's really about investing the resources and being very strategic and innovative, making sure that we're including everybody and then really um, iterating as we go and just adjusting as we go. um, I mean, so that we can have the, the objective of prosperity for all, you know, shared prosperity on the African continent. Thank you.
0: Uh, thank you very much uh, for that, uh, uh, Tenny. Um, uh, I think you have complimented Richard very well um, in terms of um, your um, uh, diagnosis of the uh, issues. Uh, you have been just as realistic as Richard has been. I think you're both uh, looking at um, I- in traffic and trade and its um, uh, potential for dynamism as, as, as a pathway forward. But you both are also being realistic in saying that uh, that would happen Automatically through um, the FCFT or any such um, uh, initiative, there has to be intentionality. There has to be the complementary policies and, and so on. But I think um, just as Richard uh, anchored his comments on the international economy and um, uh, prefer- referencing that uh, Africa is an open economy, African countries have open economies and so on. And what happens in the international economy? Inevitably impacts uh, African economies. I think what you have done, Tenny, is then to anchor uh, your comments on on African societies as well, um, because you have asked us to look at issues around uh, income inequality, inclusion, uh, regional uh, disparities, uh, uh, gender, uh, youth, um, all these uh, the dynamics which um, uh, contribute to uh, social cohesion and 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 so on, which you think. Um, Uh, important uh, as well in looking at uh, the goal that uh, trade plays um, in in economic uh, growth. Um, What um, uh, both of you have not really touched on so much, uh, although Richard did allude to this uh, a bit in what he said about um, illicit financial flows, in what he said about um, uh, that uh, much of these uh, trade agreements uh, with African countries like Agua, I guess the EU, weapons, et etc., have been overhyped, and, you know, and and, and so on. Um, but both of you have not really said much about the kinds of international responses uh, that is needed from Africa's development partners. Because what I see is that um, in every area um, there is a contestation uh, you know, for African countries to find the kind of space that they need. Whether it's on trade, or finance, and so on, um, you know, suddenly we talked about. I did mention the uh, WTO uh, agreement uh, uh, this morning, but they do not go far enough. We we know that uh, in the uh, in the key areas. So there's that contestation. So perhaps um, uh, before I open the floor, um, uh, Richard, you first, if you'd like to say something about what kinds of international responses are needed from Africa's partners. We see many initiatives. We see the debt sustainability uh, initiative, the, uh, the expectation of how SDRs would be allocated, etc. That doesn't happen. So what are you looking for from uh, international partners? And Tony, I'll come back to you with the same question. Uh, Richard first.
2: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSEIQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question like why do people believe in conspiracy theories or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSEIQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event.
1: Yeah, David, thank you. I think it's it's an incredibly important question. I mean, the answer is a lot more, right? (laughs) is the kind of simple answer to that question. Um, I mean, I think COVID, I mean, the response to COVID-19 from the uh, multilateral institutions, I think, has been pretty deplorable. I mean, if you look at the G20 debt service suspension initiative, which I think, you know, amounted to, and which has now ended, of course, but amounted to something in the order of $10 billion to, across 73 eligible countries. I mean, this is a fraction of the increased levels of debt that countries had to accumulate during the uh, 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 in response to the pan- uh, pandemic and of course it was not cancelled debt; it was suspended so countries have to pay that back with interest over the coming <laughs> over the coming years so it was it was a long way short of being a magnanimous gesture that's for sure the sdr allocation i think was very important I mean, that was a very important I think, step forward. But as you say, given that special drawing rights are allocated based on the quota system, the countries that needed the most got got the least. And that was particularly true of 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 Africa, of course, and they when you know they've been talking about recycling now for ten months. Nothing really has been. I mean, there's been a very minor, but but nothing has been recycled. And as they moving ahead, recycling is likely to take place through, for example, the resilience and sustainability trust that the IMF is setting up. But that has problems. The beauty of SDRs is that they are non conditional. They're 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 not uh, conditionalities are not attached to special drawing rights as soon as you channel it through uh, these these lending uh, uh, windows or truck funds or whatever they come with conditionalities and we we think that's an inappropriate use uh, of, of SDRs in that sense unless they change the rules uh, in the IMF for these for these um, financing opportunities I mean I do think and again nothing so really has happened but I do think the use of SDRs to recapitalize regional development banks, uh, and the, and there is an and the African Development Bank has been very strong on this actually, and and, and very clear about the opportunities that would provide them is is something we support uh, very strongly, and I think more of that needs to be uh, seen. Um, so 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 the financing side of it really fell uh, significantly short, and of course on the vaccine front. You know that was that that has proved to be a, a disaster. Right? You know, the, the this mechanism, the Covax mechanism, really clearly was not fit for purpose on the scale that we we, we confronted with, with the COVID vi- virus. Um, and and I, I, you know, obviously it's early. I, I haven't looked. I haven't seen the final outcome, David, of the WTO. They agreed it at five o'clock this morning after, after you know long and utterly non-transparent negotiations so so we haven't really had time to absorb it yet but all the signs are that is that the this is this is not this is not a waiver that is going to help countries either now with COVID-19 or more importantly with with future uh, pandemics that are certainly uh, going to come as well so or, or or to deal with similar issues in the context of the climate crisis and the need of access to appropriate technologies to do. So, so I think that that looks pretty disappointing. Um, And, and, you know, given, and I I think, I think, you know, there is a real disconnect now, I think between what we all understand, there are a series of of crises and Taniola talked about the inequality crisis. We have the, we have these developmental crises, we have the climate crisis, Uh, you know, and they're all compounding each other and they're all getting worse And right now, the multilaterals are not really uh, uh, fit for dealing with the, and and interestingly, someone like Janet Yellen said it at the IMF World Bank meetings in uh, an address she made to the Atlantic Council, that these are not, they're just not, they don't seem to be equipped to deal with these kind of problems. Uh, uh, And I I think that's true. and, And I think the need, I don't think, I think we need a much more, I mean, you know, I've, I put out a short book recently on, on calling for the, a case for a new Bretton Woods. Um, and, and, and I think, I think we, need, we can't tinker our way through the kinds of problems that we face now. We need a very serious reform. I, I agree with Taniola, and it's, a good, it's an important point you know the opportunities for south south cooperation not just in ter- in terms of sharing experiences which i think are important but also new mechanisms both on the trade front and the financing front we've already seen some of those on the financing front new financial institutions like the like the new development bank and, and others but i think scaling up some of these south south arrangements i think is a big challenge for the developing countries moving forward and i think there are real opportunities And I think they need to do it because I'm not convinced. I'm sorry to say that the multilaterals will actually step up to the plate in terms of the scale of the problems we face.
0: Thank you, Richard. Uh, Taniola?
2: Yeah, thank you. So I think it's really putting uh, their money where their mouth is as far as global cooperation goes. Um, Richard has mentioned that we saw all of the failures during the COVID-19 pandemic, how long it took for a proper global response to Africa's experience of that. But I want to talk specifically about climate change. So because climate change is something that is um, mentioned a lot when we talk about trade. So now Africa is trying to embark on this trade project with the AFCFT. And then we know that we can only sell what we produce. So it means that we're going to need some form of industrial growth, right? And that is um, carbon heavy. So the reaction from the global community has been, you know, I mean, to me, it looks a little bit like a teacher with a cane. You know, threatening people that, you know, you can't do this and this and that. You need to make sure that your industrial development is green, which is very important because we know that um, we we, uh, we feel the impacts of climate change even more than other parts of the other parts of the world. But I think it's important for the global community to realize that they need to make some hard decisions. So as far as African industrial development goes, it means that we need the carbon space to do what we need to do, right? So they need to realize that there are some sacrifices that they need to make on their end if they're really committed to global cooperation and global advancement. You know, they have to inconvenience themselves, inconvenience their own um productive class, so their own uh, industries, in order to create the space that Africa needs to get to where it needs to, it needs to be. So that's just one dimension of the, I mean, where there are some deficiencies in global cooperation and where the approach to um to just African support or African cooperation uh, may be a bit flawed and can be improved. And I think I'll just add that to everything that Richard has already mentioned. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much uh, for that, uh, Teniola. And uh, this point that you made is exactly the same point that I saw in a recent op-ed by the Prime Minister of uh, Barbados. She uses almost exactly the same phrase uh, about inconvenienting yourself, (laughs) you know, and so on. We do have a question uh, here uh, from Alex Smith, who is an LSE student uh, from Newcastle. And his question is to both of you. He says, um, what do you think uh, would be the one change of policy which would have the biggest impact. Um, Taniola, do you want to go first? And, and then uh, uh, Richard.
2: The one change of policy on the Africa level. I mean, I'd assume so. Did
0: not, uh, you know, I mean, Alex of course could be female as well, uh, but there's no um, indication of um, at what level. It's it's a general open question. So perhaps okay. you could look at it uh, international and 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 african level Mm.
2: so i mean there is a point to be made for you know some uh, growth in African protectionism. So this is now even African countries, um, protecting uh their their industries from other African countries to an extent. So coming from Nigeria, this happened with Nigeria. They were trying to grow maybe the rice production industry, and the way they went about that was very flawed. This has also happened with other countries in Africa where um they use sometimes non-tariff measures to try to block people from or block other producers from within Africa, um, from accessing their markets. So at Say that if African uh, countries, for example, Nigeria, Nigeria used to have a very strong import substitution or policy, where rather than focusing on production and exports, they were always focusing internally and blocking people from coming in. If that, uh, that 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 policy changes, where it's more of a focus on exports and then less of a focus on trying to block everyone from getting in, then we can we can make more advancements. So it would even link to things like the the experience at the ports. You know how easy is it to get things out of the country? It would just direct resources in a different, in a different way versus uh, the way that they are now directed to. Um, I think that would be a simple answer for me. So a, a lot more cooperation really.
1: Thank you, uh, Daniela. Richard? Um, Boy, I'm, I'm, I wish there were a silver bullet, but I could kind <laughs> of, I mean, I think it's similar, you know, I do think we need to have a much more serious discussion of Industrial policy on the continent. I mean, we know what we've been through before. We know there were failures before, and we and you don't want to avoid the failures of the past with an with not with an excessive um, uh, use of import substitution that didn't really work, because you can never at the level of development that African most African countries are at depend simply on on domestic markets for. For, for growth engines. So, so you know, we need a, a kind of discussion of the strategic use of industrial policy linked to uh, uh, current circumstances. Um, and I think the climate issue there is very important. I think linking development with climate, with industrial policy, I think is, has to be done. And I think it's the way to go. I think it will open up lots of opportunities. So so thinking of, of industrial policy, both in the, given the history uh, Africa's own history of their successes and failures, and also in the new context of the climate challenge, uh, both mitigation and adaptation, I think is, I, you know, if, we, if we're to invest a lot of time in there, I think that, that would be an area that that merits much more uh, heavy thinking. I mean, uh, you know, at the international level, develop, develop I mean, yeah, developed countries should, you know, practice what they preach right essentially that's that's what you know they need to step up on ODA ODA is not a solution but they've never they've never lived up to what what they promised they would give to the continent and that's that's clear and we need a different type of development financing mechanisms to ensure access at at reasonable and sustainable rates you know in if we're going to meet the 2030 we've got eight years left to meet the 2030 agenda and I, I, we would argue in that context, we need to see debt cancellation in large part, on large part. I don't I don't think Afri- many African countries can achieve the kinds of growth rates we're talking about, particularly clean growth, given the burden of debt that most of them face. I, I just, I can't, I don't see it as a possibility.
0: Thank you, Richard. Now there are about five or six questions. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read them out and, um, ask uh, uh, you, Taniola, Richard, to take them as uh, you may wish. I note that a couple of them are specifically on climate uh, change. Um, so, you know, again, keep, keep that in mind. Uh, it's becoming an important part of this uh, discussion here. So the first question is from Ted Belger, and um, he says uh, the structure of the continent's economy is mainly focused on primary agriculture. Is this not a huge internal factor which has held back its developments. Their manufacturing and service sectors lag massively behind and are thought to be a huge uh, huge factor for uh, Western uh, investment, I I guess is is the point here. Uh, Then the second question is from Uba Okunko. uh, he's a regional liaison officer for Africa at the uh, LSA Alumni Association. Uh, LSA Alumni Association, he says, you stated in your presentation that premature industrialization is a major challenge to Africa's sustainable development. In your view, to what extent will the effect, effective implementation of the AFCFTA and inter-African trade address this problem? Then Antony Valion uh, asks, are there lessons we can learn from ideas discussed in 1970s with recent supply chain shocks disrupting supplies such as oil, gas, and grains, should it be a priority for all African countries, for all countries, not just in Africa, to become self-sufficient in meeting their basic uh, needs first where they can and trade their excess goods to help others. Um, And then he also says uh, to foster development strategically, including renewable energy transmission, low carbon goods and services uh, uh, as well. Then Craig Stock asks, in the face of increasing climate shocks to African agricultural output, to what extent do you see trade policy as important for future food security in Africa, particularly in the light of the risks of trade as highlighted by the loss of uh, Ukrainian imports? Then Hannah Getachu asks, um, my question is, what ways can AFCFTA advance Africa's climate agenda? And then finally, Max Blashmacher asks, how do you view the economic impact that startups like Twiga Foods or Wasoko have on SMEs?" I know that these are disparate uh, questions, um, but I wanted to uh, get everything in and we still have about um, eight minutes to go. Uh, So, Tenny, um, why don't you go first and um, uh, pick on any of the uh, questions? You have the floor.
2: Thank you, so there was a question on commodities and I mean, what role they may be able to play or not in industrial development. And I'd say that, I mean, there is some research on, Even when, as a country, perhaps your exports are focused on commodities, you can attempt to move up in the commodities value chain. So you can even try to add more value to whatever it is. Um, If, For example, if it's an agricultural produce, you can look more at adding processing to to whatever you're doing to that. And it's usually uh, an easy enough place to start from versus trying to create entire new industries. So while commodities have really put um, African economies in a tough position they still have opportunities that can be explored you know as far as moving up the value chain goes as far as increasing complexity in their production goes uh, because you already have obviously the raw material and you don't have to bring it from anywhere um the afcft and industrialization i think you know it's really about so the afcft I, i like to remind people that the afcft is not about africa just deciding that they want to trade um african countries deciding that they only want to trade amongst themselves it's the reality that the world is only is at the moment is um, not very interested in buying certain things from African countries. Or perhaps if African countries start by trading those things amongst themselves, they will grow their capacity in such a way that they'll become more competitive um, on the on the global platforms or in, in global trade. So the end goal is still global trade, right? But the AFCFT as a starting point. So that's a link to industrialization because when you start to trade um, higher value goods, when your industries grow, then you sort of like, I mean, it's supposed to be about structural transformation and just taking your economy away from the lower value um, production to higher value production because you get more for, for higher value goods than lower value goods and they are more competitive um, in those markets. So that's a link between the AFCFT and industrialization in Africa. Self-sufficiency in production. I don't know because, <laughs> I mean, it'd be good to hear from Richard about this, but uh, I mean, in 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 the current day or in, in the modern, modern era, I'm not sure there are many countries that can produce everything that their citizens need i think that's going to be quite difficult so it's really about i guess it's about having um flexible uh, sometimes supply chains knowing that i mean having several options so for example if it was possible when there's something going on somewhere you can switch to another place then things might have been a little bit easier so it's just about increasing everyone's capacity really because if africa was producing at the level that it ought to be um, even the world would have more options as far as trying to redirect um, demand and supply um, for some of the, the, the things that we need. Um, climate change, trade policy and food security very important because some of my work even um, focuses on the Lake Chad Basin where the Boko Haram crisis is, is domiciled. And in the Lake Chad Basin, you see a combination of both insecurity and food security and climate change. So food security in, in, in the sense that both climate change and insecurity have affected the ability of farmers and even fishers to access their grounds. And then that is even uh, affecting trade because there was a lot of trade in the Lake Chad Basin. The Lake Chad Basin is Nigeria, Chad, Niger, Cameroon. So I guess the answer to that question very simply is just that yes, um, we have to be looking at the connections between these things, even as we design our policies and make sure that the policies respond adequately to the different dimensions of the, of the issues. So um, that's what I'd say on that. The AfCFTA and the climate agenda, just back to my point on late development. So with the AfCFTA, African countries are at the starting point of trying to begin to grow their economies, grow their economic structures in a particular direction. It will benefit us in the long run if, um, the building blocks are the right kinds of building blocks. So if we, we, I mean, if we have the right kinds of policies, I mean that. Um, our industrial growth is a bit more sustainable. So we don't run into issues somewhere down the line. So I'd say that that's the link between the AFCFTA and uh, I mean, the climate agenda. We just have an opportunity that some other, so, so for some other parts of the world now, they have to really like go back and start redoing things. But we are at the starting point in in, in many respects. So we have an opportunity to do things right um now because I mean, even if you forget the world, it, it's also about, about us and the effects of climate change on, on our people. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you, Taniola. Uh, Richard. Yeah, I think underlying a lot of these questions, I mean, you know what all African country or any country really has to do at that level of development is to raise its productivity. Productivity is a very key concept in this story, um, uh, but you, you know, you and, and it's a source of of rising incomes and 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 and, gr- and growing uh, gr- growing uh, employment opportunities, if it's done properly, because if it's not done properly, of course rising productivity can come at the expense of jobs and as taniola rightly pointed out jobs is one of the big issues across the continent in in workforces that are highly informal and therefore low productivity a key challenge is to get people out of that informal uh, sector and into more formal work, which which is higher productivity and better paying, and that's that really is, a, and that's true in agriculture as much as it's true in the urban economy uh, as well. So you know, and and you and you can only square that kind of circle, of course, if you have a growth rate that is is reasonably high. I mean, you, you to have rising productivity with uh, rising employment, you need a strong growth. Um, and, and, of course, in the world that we're talking about, that growth, we want to be green growth or, you know, it needs to be fueled by a different kind of energy system than the one that we've seen uh, uh, lead to rising uh, wealth in, the, in today's advanced economies. And, and you know, and, and that's, that's the challenge. And it's a big cha- It's a huge challenge. I, you know, I don't think we should underestimate the size, the size of that challenge. Um, and the need for international support from to do it properly I think that I think again emphasizing that international dimension you raised David is it's is critical if this is going to happen in a way that doesn't reinforce inequalities that doesn't you know lead to the polarizations that we've seen uh, in in recent years um, and I, I mean I think the CFTA you know off, offers opportunities of course I think it really does but it's not automatic uh, you know it, it won't it needs, it needs to be strategic, and it needs to be coordinated. I mean, it needs to be real coordination, and those pose not just um, uh, logistical problems, but, but political problems that, that still need to be overcome. Um, and but I think I think I think that's the I think I think it's the the right way to go. Um, and 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 you know I think I think we just have to, it just requires a lot of strategic thinking. And it does require an effective secretariat. I think think there is an attempt now to create a secretariat linked to the CFTA. I do think that's important because these issues have to be coordinated. Just, Just on the trade policy, you know, we worry a lot that the kind of direction that the advanced economies are going, and I think we've seen that in the WTO this week, are not necessarily going to make life easier when it comes to food security or climate uh, change in in developing countries. The, the, the idea of a carbon border adjustment mechanism which is coming down the road is going to make uh, some meeting some of these structural challenges all the more difficult for developing countries unless again it comes with appropriate financial compensation because the the dirty industries have have already gravitated to the South. That's just a fact. You know, that's why the North thinks it's doing a good job itself, because it's got its outsourced carbon intensive activities to developing countries and then complains about developing countries actually producing uh, uh, increased emissions. I mean, mean, this is classic hypocrisy, really. But but if we're going to deal with that problem properly, we need financing. to to ensure that developing countries can can make the adjustment without uh, reinforcing the the divisions and and tensions that already exist. And so I, I I think it's very important that African countries and African policymakers not only worry about what happens in the CFTA, but also worry about the direction that the multilateral trading agenda uh, Will be going over the next. But I, I, I think what happened this week was essentially kicking the can down the road. David, I, d- I don't think they solved any problems at all. I think they essentially kicked the can down the road, uh, and 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 African policymakers need to have a very clear idea about where that road is going if if they don't want to get screwed in the process. Yeah. No, um, you're quite
0: right. Uh, some key issues were left to 2023. <laughs> we eventually yeah. mention this too. We dealt with uh, that. But um, I think we've come to the end of our time. And my uh, thanks to uh, our speakers, uh, Richard and Teniola, and to you, the audience, for joining this um, uh, event, and especially to um, uh, those in the audience who uh, sent in uh, questions uh, and comments. Now, please feel very welcome to join future LSE events on Africa, both online and in person, if possible. Uh, Please also be on the lookout for our new book, to be published early next year. The title is Africa Trade Policy Review 2023 How the Pandemic Impacted African Trade from the Trade Program at the was larger Institute for Africa. And this uh, book will discuss many of the issues covered um, in this uh, session. So, once again, my thanks to all. And I think it's been uh, a great discussion, and many insights, and I'm sure that uh, many have taken away uh, important uh, points to think about. So thanks to all and um, wishing you uh, a great rest of the day. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.
1: Okay. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE events podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.